This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for a new episode of Fancy Politics. We made it through all 15 ballots of speaker voting and hope that you did as well. (sighs) I spent more time on C-SPAN than I thought was possible. So we're going to talk about that today. We are going to talk about the January 6th committee's work and its report. We're going to talk about an unfortunate export of January 6th from the United States to Brazil. And then we're going to completely change the mood by bringing in Casper Turkheil for a delightful conversation about connecting with one another more fully. And outside of politics, we're going to celebrate all the holiday cards that you all sent us. It was a blessing, and we're going to commemorate the blessing today. Now, don't forget, if you want to be a part of our January 6th Report Book Club, make sure you're signed up for our premium content on either Apple Podcast subscription or Patreon. Beth, you had an interesting interaction this weekend about our premium content that I thought would be a nice moment to remind people what it actually is. I did. My sweet friend Phyllis from church came up to me on Sunday. She became a premium supporter just because she loves the show and wanted to support our work, which means so much to me. It always hits you when somebody in your real life, you know, cares Mm -hmm. that much about your work. So Phyllis said that until she listened to our year-end compilation of the episodes that I did from More to Say About Mar-a-Lago, she didn't really understand what she might have been missing in the premium content. And Sarah, it made me think about how I think we do a disservice to our premium content when we talk about it as bonus content. Because the Mm -hmm. truth is, we make two other podcasts. That's what we do. And they are behind a paywall. Sarah makes a Good Morning podcast where she does the headlines Monday through Thursday. It's funny. It's delightful. It gives you everything that you need to know. It's curated, so you don't have to decide what's important. Sarah decides for you. And it is a really lovely way to start the day every day. And then on Monday through Wednesday by myself, I make a podcast about one particular topic that I just have more to say about. That is why it's called More to Say. And Sarah joins me there on Thursday for what is really like another episode of Pantsuit Politics. But we get a little spicier. We like to provide some of our hot takes there. And there's cursing. The people love the cursing. They live for the cursing. We had cursing last week on Thursday due to the speaker race. People loved it. And Wednesdays, we're going to be together the next few weeks because that's where we're going to cover the January 6th book club. And listen, Phyllis, it wasn't even her fault. Like the Patreon app was not letting her click through the content. She had to reinstall it. It's just stuff like that that sometimes I think we're all busy. We're all trying to get through life. You sign up because you support us and maybe don't you know, the apps can be confusing adding that, but we are here to support you. You can reach out to um, our team at any time if you feel like you're not getting the full benefit or if you want to learn more. We are here. The people who support us financially make this podcast possible. We're not breaking any new ground here when we say that advertising is fickle. And so having the steady support of our listeners is, is how we can expand our team and continue to do more and better work for all of you. Next up, we are going to talk about the endless speaker race that finally came to conclusion. Lord. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. After 15 ballots, we have a new Speaker of the House. Kevin McCarthy is the 55th Speaker. I always like to hear numbers like that to just think through how long our country's been around, how few people get to do these jobs. Mm-hmm. And now it's Kevin. He wanted it the worst and he got it. Well, and also to remind us, it's probably not the first bozo to do this job. Out of 55, there were some bozos, I promise. So there's a vote scheduled on Monday evening. We're recording Monday afternoon on the rules package, which had some negotiations with the 20 holdouts. But most of the negotiations with the 20 holdouts have not really been put in a form where the entire caucus has had a chance to take a look Mm -hmm. at them. And there's some unhappiness about that. So I love the people who are pointing out the easiest vote that you should take in Congress is for the speaker. And the second easiest should be for the rules. And there's no ease in this process. Mm -mm. I was very struck by Matt Gates, who got in a physical altercation before this final vote. That's fun. That's a fun addition to the history books, saying, I, I ran out of things to ask for. And I think these, this agreement, as much as we do know about it, is a complete capitulation to the conservative caucus. I thought the New York Times did a good write-up on this in the morning today as we're recording on Monday, which said, these sound so common sense. They sound good, right? Like, give people time to read. Let them make amendments. But this is just going to serve a complete slowdown, if not total gridlock, in the House of Representatives. Even the stuff they're already proposing they know is not going to make it out of the Senate. It just is hard to look at this first vote, this rules package, and think anything is going to happen in the House of Representatives over the next two years, except for, of course, investigations. I look at the rules package and see not a lot of new ideas. They're restoring a lot of rules from times when Republicans have previously controlled the House. I think what's different here is the fact that you cannot imagine 
McCarthy being able to steer almost any substantive vote forward without losing four members of his caucus. I mm-hmm. think that's the that's what's new. They're going to take all of these votes that are purely symbolic for ideas that will never go anywhere in the Senate. But every House of Representatives does that. Mm-hmm. Democrats just did it and Republicans are going to do it. A lot of it will be obnoxious investigations, TV time, grandstanding. We've seen that before. It'll be orders of magnitude worse here because of the kind of dissent of the Republican Party, you know, outside of anything resembling the people's business. But overall, I'm kind of struggling with how consequential especially are the rules negotiations. I think what's more consequential are the committee assignments, the people who are going to be in place to implement the rules, because these rules are like self-enforcing. You know, if they want to get things done, they will waive the things in their way of getting Mm -hmm. things done. It's more about the personnel side of this. To the personnel aspect, both the people on the committees and Kevin McCarthy himself, uh, the Washington Post had a great write-up about how this all happened. And it was just, you know, after so many ballots to read about the fall apart happened because of unforced errors from McCarthy. Like, he insulted these people. He put details in there that were really not what they were asking for, I guess, assuming they weren't going to read it. He yelled at them in a caucus meeting, which then, of course, just hardened everybody's position. It's just, he's so bad at this job. And now he's made the job that he's already not good at that much harder. And he's empowered people who, although I find abhorrent, the likes of Jim Jordan and and Biggs and Perry, like they're a little bit better at this game than he is. And now he's empowered them by putting him in these positions of power on committees. And it's just, <sighs> that's my analysis. Ugh. What I think is the big takeaway from the past few days is that the people who have power in the House are the people who take it. Mm-hmm. And that's what the people who are good at this know. The Jordans, the Biggs, the Gates, the Perrys, they, they know there are 435 of us and we are equals until we decide not to be anymore. And it's what bugs me the most in seeing how for four days, as we don't have members sworn in, We have so few people willing to say, what can I do to help here? It's just everybody dug in to their positions instead of anybody saying, what what would actually be helpful? My fan fiction version of this is that I very much wish somebody like Josh Gottheimer would have stood up and said, you know what? I'm a Democrat. I do not want a Republican speaker, but that's how the chips have fallen. So I would like to nominate the co-chair of the Problem Solvers Caucus, Brian Fitzpatrick, for this position. Because here we were in a situation that was a problem that needed solving. And I would have loved to see a coalition of members who say they do that stuff take as much power as the Freedom Caucus guys take. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, it's just so disturbing. As we mentioned at the top of the show, we are in the midst of reading the January 6th report with our premium community. And I'm sitting here reading this report, reading about Donald Trump's actions on January 6th in great detail, reading about Kevin McCarthy's interactions with Donald Trump post-January 6th. And he finally takes this gavel, stands up, and just praises him 
so effusively. And, you know, back to that Washington Post thing, they talked about, like, he didn't really sway that many people, and he seemed completely bored with it. He doesn't care about this stuff. He doesn't care about the details of what the Freedom Caucus are asking for. And they know that. That's why they weren't taking his calls on the floor of the House when Marjorie Taylor Greene was trying to hand him a cell phone. So it's just, watch McCarthy, again, not good at this job, stand up there and praise him, like, in the midst of reading this. And then especially the next day, with the events in Brazil, it just was so disturbing, like to that sort of naked power grab and the people who tried to grab power on January 6th in the most treasonous way, still up there on committees, still up there talking, still up there praising Donald Trump was just so disturbing. It was. And I I really do expect Democrats to try to be helpful in this situation because it is such a bad situation. I was I was bummed by the speech that everybody loved from Representative Jeffries, the the ABCs of why Democrats are better than Republicans. Like, congrats. Yes, you are. I got it. It's asymmetrical here. And also, if this is as bad as I think it is, if the fact that the key players in the speaker drama, including McCarthy himself, were all referred to the Ethics Committee for defying legally issued subpoenas from the January 6th committee is as big a deal as it sounds like. I don't want a really cool speech about how much they suck. I want people to get together and exercise the power they have to get in there and get something out of these negotiations so this body can function as well as it can, given the representatives that the American people have sent there. I just don't know what they do. Honestly, like I just, you know, I... I I'm not doubting that members of the Democratic caucus, particularly whose lives were in danger on January 6th, feel and understand this threat. I don't think there's any love lost with people like Jim Jordan and Andy Biggs. But I don't you know, when you're when you're dealing with particularly the Freedom Caucus that will take that power that does not operate in good faith and a completely bankrupt leadership like what I, I don't know what they would do. Honestly, I don't. I don't know what they're supposed to do. I mean, besides stick to the January 6th committee, which they did, make these criminal referrals, follow that process out. Like, I just, I'm not really sure what that would look like. I mean, I think it would look like people from the center trying to gather other people from the center and say, can we get to a governing 50 plus 1 percent of this body? Because we know that it's only going to get harder from here when we're looking at debt ceiling fights, when we're looking at funding for Ukraine, the appropriations process, like we need a governing majority. And that's not going to come through party line votes because the Republicans are not going to be able to hold those together. I just think that's really hard because their center is Nancy Mace. Like I would struggle to negotiate with somebody like her, like the center. I think it's we can say, well, the center, but there's not really the center. There's the Democratic center and then there's the Republican center and they're pretty far apart. 100%. It's not going to be easy to watch it all fall apart either. We don't send people to do these jobs for it to be easy. It is it is hard. And just everybody being intransigent, we know what it's going to produce. We just watched it. Right. And I don't want to I don't want that to be for two years. Well, I just think, though, that's the, the motivation, though. I remember that political scientist on the Ezra Klein podcast a while back saying, like, when power changes hands so frequently, particularly in the House of Representatives, there's not a lot of motivation because you're thinking, well, in a year and a half, we'll be campaigning on what failures they are and we can take back control. And so that's the political motivation is just to contain the damage, blame it on them and take back control. And that again, that's kind of hard to argue with. But it's a waste. 
And it's a waste of everyone's one wild and precious life and opportunity to serve in these positions that so few people get to serve in. And I just think we are in that we are in such an insane cycle of doing the same thing and and expecting anything to be different. We talked about the January 6th report a little bit. Let's talk a little bit more about that because we were off on winter break during the final hearing and report. As you know now, the committee in that final hearing summed up its case against the former president and outlined the criminal charges it thinks should be brought against him. Sarah, especially as I am reading the final report, it seems clear to me that this whole criminal referral debate that the committee struggled with is really just Congress saying to the Department of Justice, hello from your co-equal branch of government. Please do not go after the little guys and neglect the people with the most culpability. Do it with your tools. Do it the way you think you need to. Do it under the the charges you think you can win. But but don't let the big guys off the hook when you are pursuing the little guys so hard. Well, and I think that's so prescient now that we're watching our January 6th export spread to Brazil, that you cannot focus on the protesters. I think Brazil is a more difficult case. For those of you who are not following the news closely, over the weekend, on Sunday in Brazil, after the swearing-in of Lula, the new president of Brazil, thousands of protesters stormed their capital, both the Supreme Court building, the Congressional building, and the Presidential Palace. These protesters didn't appear out of nowhere. They have been occupying military barracks across the country since the election in October. So there was a march. They were never seemingly stopped by any federal security officials on the ground in Brasilia, the capital of Brazil. And so they went all the way. They did an enormous amount of damage. There's some pretty horrific video of the treatment of police on the ground. The buildings have been taken back. This is, a again, same song, different verse. Hundreds of people have been arrested. And so now Brazil is facing this fallout, much like we did after January 6th, and asking those questions. How were they able to get through so clearly? How do we deal with the thousands of protesters who did the physical damage? What do we do with the people that were perhaps organizing from the top? There's been discussion that Bolsonaro, who's currently in the United States, son, has been working with Steve Bannon, who makes many, many appearances in the January 6th report. So it's just so depressing to be reading this report watching the speaker election in the House and Kevin McCarthy's speech, then the events in Brazil, and then this morning, like, listening to the BBC Global News say over and over again, well, this echoes the events in the United States. This echoes the terrible events in the United States. It's just depressing. It's so depressing. I also read this morning that Bolsonaro was actually in the United States on January 6, 2021, as a guest of Ivanka Trump at the White House. Oh, my God. So the ties here are are close-knit. It's really fascinating to see how Florida is becoming, the Bulwark described it as like this mythical home of the MAGA movement, of this sort of global authoritarian movement. I'm curious to see what the Biden administration will do if Bolsonaro is, in fact, still in Florida and if the Brazilian court demands that he be brought back. He has kind of passively criticized the violence, but definitely encouraged what he says would be peaceful demonstrations against this election. He has not conceded the election. Didn't go to the inauguration. Yeah, we have the Trump doublespeak. Again, same song, different verse. It is. We'll continue to follow what's going on in Brazil. It is easy to feel down when we are in this conversation about January 6th and election denialism. And even the Speaker of the House story is not particularly encouraging. But what we really learned over the past year is that the future is not predetermined. 
what we do matters. And of course, all of our work here at Pansy Politics is premised on the idea that our relationships are extremely powerful in figuring out what the future will look like. So we are delighted to be joined for our next segment by Casper Turkheil. Casper is the author of The Power of Ritual. He is the co-founder of the Sacred Design Lab and co-creator of podcasts Harry Potter and the Sacred Text and the Real Question. He is one of my favorite voices and is widely celebrated on community trends and ritual and emerging spirituality. He's recently launched The Nearness, which he'll tell you about at the end of our conversation. And it's just a real thrill to have him here. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit.
so delighted that you're here, Casper. Tell us your origin story of the version of you that's here. How did you go from climate activist to leading voice in rethinking spirituality and ritual and community? Who? Uh... <laughs> start light and easy. Yeah. Help. Quick, real quick. <laughs> well, honestly, the older I get, the more the continuity feels like it's important, even if at the time it really felt like a lot of change. So I grew up in England. My parents are both from Holland, but they'd moved to the UK. And so I was born and raised in London and then in the, the countryside south of London. And I, we were a non-religious home, you know, in the UK. It's a very different kind of spiritual religious landscape to that of the US. So um, certainly when I, by the time I was a kid, it was kind of weird to be religious and I didn't really know anyone who went to church. And so it was kind of, yeah, just an absence of institutional religion in my life. And that suited me just fine because I came out when I was uh, in my teens and I was like, well, you know, God doesn't like gay people. Gay people don't like God. So bye. You know, it was kind of, <laughs> it was a very simple breakup uh, if there had ever been anything there. And I really threw myself, as you mentioned, into climate activism. So I was trying to mobilize young people around the UN climate negotiations and um, had that classic kind of activist experience of after three, four years of really going all in, just burning out, just having nothing left in the mm -hmm. tank um, was the way I thought about it. And so I didn't know what to do with my life. I, I, I finished school and I'd loved my studies, but I you know, just didn't know where to go with my life. And so I ended up in graduate school studying public policy, which was, you know, a useful, good thing for your resume. Um, but I was suddenly much more interested in what these weird people across campus were doing at the Divinity School. And the way I like to position those two together is, in policy school, we asked, how do you, you know, reduce the recidivism rate? And in Divinity School, they were talking about, why do we have prisons? And so mm -hmm. it was just a very different kind of conversation and one that felt much more attuned to my um, heart, but I think also my my existing skill set. Like, I'm not the best person to calculate a p-value. Like, I'm never going to be a quant wizard. I'm really good with people. And what I, what I learned in divinity school was how to take the things that I already had an interest in, like building community and creating culture and kind of getting to know how to do that much more skillfully and to connect that to a much longer tradition of people who'd been doing it too. You know, how do you use food and song and dance and ritual to help build a, a, a sense of an us? Um, and that just set my imagination aflame. And I started to, um, you know, even though I came into Divinity School as a gay atheist, you know, I, I'd like to joke that I left it still very gay, less of an atheist. Um, <laughs> but but it, 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 it really gave me a language and a discipline for the kind of things that I cared most about, which were meaning and culture and relationships. That's, I guess, how I've, how I ended up here. I wonder if, the word burnout that we so often use to describe people at that phase of life is even like the right word. Isn't it just developmentally appropriate? Isn't mm. that what we do in our youth? Like I'm, I have to remind myself all the time that my 13 year old's legalistic thinking is developmentally appropriate. <laughs> um, right. Like we we yeah. we we do this black and white thing and we kind of dive in and then we sort of start to to break it down and reshape it. But you have to, I always think about Richard War saying like, you have to have an ego to break it down and yeah. reshape it. You yeah. know, it's like we, this is sort of this inevitable path I think people find themselves on because that is the work of your, you know, late teens and early 20s is sort of 
diving in and finding your limits, right? It's not necessarily a bad thing. And I wonder how as you, you know, age and develop other skills and lean into community and watch other people, young people take this journey, how you think about that phase of life. That's a beautiful question. The language I would use now rather than a kind of traditional burnout is it was heartbreak, you know, because really I, I believed what everyone had told me, which is that I could change the world. Um, And I believed it because I saw other people doing it, right? It was so inspiring to be connected to young people around the world who were, you know, changing energy infrastructure and who were, you know, really involved and and successful in what they were doing um, in Australia and India and Canada, like all around the world, that those were the people who were inspiring me. And so when I felt like I had failed because there was no UN climate (laughs) agreement that was at the rigor that was necessary, you know, I'd been living in that story that it was my fault. And so that's what crushed me. And so I, I, in my mind, I've moved away from that burnout language, which is kind of mechanistic and like there's nothing left in the tank, as I was just saying. And it was more about realizing that the story I had for myself about who I was in the world, it was just not true. And so I had to kind of find a new story about who I was. And so I think it's much more about a disconnect of meaning and reality (laughs) than it was Mm -hmm. about not having energy. Right. Yeah. It's like very, I think about you when you said heartbreak, I started to tear up because like that was, that was so how I felt at that stage. You just feel like it's all on you to fix it. Like you just think it's all on you as an individual to fix it. And you just want to grab their little, (laughs) the kids and the young people on that stage and be like, hey, 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 don't do that to yourself. Don't do that to yourself. You know, I do think we're in that situation partly because we're, we don't have the same kind of multi-generational activist infrastructure or like that, that experience of community where I didn't, you know, every youth movement has to create itself because it's like, there's no youth movement. We must do this. Uh, (laughs) Well, there was one 20 years ago. It's just, they've aged out and they're not in relationship with us. And so we don't know about it. Um, You know, and I, I, I think about that a lot now that I'm in my gosh, mid to late thirties and, and feel you know, I, I I see younger people coming on the scene with all the same energy and and you know righteous critique, which I am grateful for because we need that. Um, but I also, as you say, you can you can kind of see something coming down the line, and I I can't catch everyone, but I've definitely made a couple of bets of being like I'm going to stay you know close to you so that if mm-hmm. and when this happens, you know I'm. At least I know about it. And I can tell you you're not the first. Sounds like community. Yeah. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. And I was lucky, I should say, I had I had a couple of those mentors who who paved the way for me to end up in divinity school because Charlotte Miller in particular, you know, she was my age now. And she said, well, what is it that you love about singing? Why do you like bringing people together? Like, I just never connected those questions to what I thought was my purpose around, you know, climate stuff. And and she helped build that bridge to 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 show me there was a place for my gifts in a, a broader movement, maybe not the one I, mm. I had been in. I love how you said that you like thinking about how song and dance and ritual create a sense of us. It reminds me of a conversation we were having with my sister and her husband. Um, our kids love the sound of music and we were watching the movie oh, and talking yes. about that moment where they're dancing this traditional Austrian yes. dance and about how... As adults, we're like looking at Captain Von Trapp, seeing him in a totally different way than we did yeah. as kids and and thinking like, wow, these songs are so meaningful to him and such a part of how he understands his relationship to his country. How can we get that 
here in America mm-hmm. in 2022? How can we have a, a positive sense of national identity instead of this really negative attachment to nationalism? And mm-hmm. I wonder if you see that kind of political dimension arising in all of this community work that you do, where people develop just a, a healthier expression of their connection to place when they are deeply rooted in community. Mm. Well, first thing to say is I was so outraged when I realized that that piece of music was composed for the movie. It's not a traditional Austrian dance at all. <laughs> oh, that is gutting. I might need right? a moment with that. always be sneaky like that, man. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I absolutely, I know that scene and I, I the question is a good one. Gosh, I well, I'll say just from my lived experience, you know, I've always had multiple national belongings. And so mm. um, in some way that's made it, I now have three passports, which is bewildering, uh, but, but it's made any love of country always, um, it, there's had to be space for multiple loves. And, and I think that's made it more safe in my mind to love one because I know it's not in opposition to another it it's it can sit next to um and mm. I, I I think it's I think that's how we have to think about a love of place it's not that this place is better than anything else like loving it doesn't it, it's never oppositional it's all it's always particular and that's the thing that maybe gets lost even within and an, an national love is that is the particularities of place and that's why I love thinking about family traditions and local customs and like you know, when I meet someone from a new town, like I'm, I'm always curious, like what, what do you love about the place that you live? Like learning that Battle Creek, Michigan, and forgive me, this is also deeply ingrained in capitalism, but has like a national cereal day because that's where the Kellogg's Beautiful. headquarter is, and so they yes. have a day where like ev- all the all the cereals are free, and you could, you know, all they're all in, lined go. up on a table. Me too. <laughs> like, or, or you know, whatever weird and wonderful tradition your place has, I, I think is 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 something to lean into. And it's the 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 particularity that that's the thing to love, not the the comparality. I just made up a new word. Uh, I but- like it though. <laughs> I think it was good. Good job. I mean, listen. One of our most popular Instagram posts this year was about local festivals. Really, people went off. People were in it. Yeah, they loved it. We started talking about a lentil festival, but now there's like a list of fifty festivals I'm going to have to go to. Well, and you know, I think that particularity is such a good word though, because I see that not just in in our political discourse around place, but also our political discourse around identity. Mm -hmm. I think there is something really powerfully um, important about the discourse around masculinity. I'm raising three boys, Mm. and I think we've identified what we don't like about it, but we're having trouble articulating what is to love about Mm. positive Mm. masculinity. And I think that the part of it, why we're coming up short, is because we want to, like— intellectualize it and create it in our own brains. And I think what's so powerful about your work is that you're naming like, no, 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 like community and ritual is a place to form these places with each other, not on this individual journey. It's so hard to hold these two things in tension. The older I get, the more I think about that, like being able to live with paradox without freaking out and running to one of them is is probably a sign of wisdom. But Yes, we need to. We, yes, we need particularity, and we need community, and those two things are intention. Because to be in community, we have to have something that we hold together, um, and that means a willingness to kind of, yes, subsume our individual immediate needs and desires mm-hmm. to what 
is healthiest for the group. And if we want our particularity, it's about centering ourselves. And I, I, I think, thank God we have lived, and this is Robert Bella's work that I'm drawing on here, but thank God we have lived in an age where a lot of the structures and the, the hierarchies of, and I'm talking here about a kind of Western world, um, which were deeply patriarchal and, and deeply classist and, and everything else, right that we've tried to to interrupt those systems and structures and certainly as a queer man i am super grateful for for the for the freedoms that have come with that in no way complete in no way finished but nonetheless some progress and yet as that pendulum is swung from a society of structure and hierarchy towards one of more freedom and individual choice more and more people feel disconnected lonely and like every interaction with someone else you have to navigate because I don't know who we are in terms of status to one another. Like, if I know it's my job to be subservient to you because you're our higher status, then I know what my role is in this encounter. If we have to figure it out every time we meet someone, it, it it's just much more complex. And I think that's why you're yeah. seeing so much interested so much interest in the conversation about identity and particularities because we're trying to figure out well who am i if i'm not the function i serve in society that might be overly complex but, but what i see happening now is a kind of desire to find some new structure that hopefully maintains the freedoms that we have but also gives us some way of being in relationship to each other that isn't dependent on our own creativity. Because if I have to go and like build the container for a relationship every day, it's exhausting. Yeah. And I think that's why everyone's just like, I can't even. <laughs> well, and think about that politically, like absolutely. in a context of not just societal, but like our media environment. We're bombarded by like these new societal minefields. We're bombarded by all this incredible information, which also feeds those societal minefields, like it's a lot for our brains. And we don't have the communities that we're in where we encounter one another across difference to know mm -hmm. that we're not always dangerous to each other. I, I want to be careful about how I frame that. There are absolutely times where, where there is real danger. But but the narrative, I think, of um, us versus them becomes so much more toxic when you don't have any thems in your life that you love. Mm. And so I'm really interested in the kind of strategic question of how do we build containers of relationship where I don't have to like you to love you. That's really missing. Well, and layered on top of all of that is a particular form of status where uh, the kind of earnestness required to even figure out what these containers are is yeah. a little bit unsophisticated, right? We don't mm -hmm. we don't use words like trust and honesty and loyalty without a little bit of an eye roll or something. <laughs> That's my professional background. You know, I, I came up through um, the legal profession and being in a very well-respected firm, I just noticed that earnestness was like not for us here. That was that belonged to another social class. We wouldn't name it that way, but it did. Mm. And so getting to do the work that we do now where we're constantly saying, well, like, what value is exhibited through this political work is really refreshing. And it also requires an undoing of all that learning. So I wondered, because mm. you're so good at just leaning into that earnestness, if that's something that you've deliberately cultivated in your work or sort of what sustains that for you? Well, and not for nothing, Harry Potter was like that door to earnestness for so many people. That's why it's so mm -hmm. beloved. That is why that text is sacred, as you would call it, or beloved, because it it allowed that earnestness again. I really think that's part of its appeal. Hmm, I think that's so insightful. 
gosh, well, I'm not sure I'm very good at it. So <laughs> I'm hesitant to, to say it. But I, you know, I think maybe one of the things that I grew up learning, like our household was very open in the sense that my mother ran a bed and breakfast in our house. We always had people staying. Like our kitchen was always filled with someone. And that was um, deeply frustrating as a child. <laughs> I hated it. Because <laughs> uh, it meant I wasn't getting the attention I wanted. And of course, I was the most important <laughs> thing. Plus, I had three sisters. You know, that, there was just a lot happening. But I think the thing I learned from my mother is that everyone is interesting once you get them talking. And mm. and that's certainly the way I I think I live if, if I have enough, uh, you know, if I have enough sleep and 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 I'm not running on the, on empty, but um, yeah, once you get people talking, there's always something that's interesting and therefore something to love, uh, and and so I think with with that kind of foundational assumption about the world, it's just a different way of entering into it. That's not always how I am. I don't, I don't want to paint myself in any sort of saintly way, but it 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 certainly is there when I when I show up with that kind of orientation. And and when you believe it enough, I think maybe this is one of the things that that I do is that other people then dare to believe it too. And so yes. with the Harry Potter podcast, you know, I I was never an expert in 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 tech study or an expert even in Harry Potter. A lot of people know much more about that series than I do. But with Vanessa and Ariana, our producer, you know, we were able to model something, I think, that made it safe for other people to do that too. And mm-hmm. and they took it in a wonderful hundred different directions from from where we did. We had people setting up small groups and all sorts of other wonderful things. Um, but but just returning to a text with the kind of intention and and um attention and repetition over time, it it made something new that was possible that was really exciting. Well, and I think that earnestness that that invitational energy is cyclical in the same way like loneliness can be. We did a show on loneliness mm. and we talked about like you, you if you're if you're alone and then you feel excluded and then you start to distrust your interactions with other people so you seclude yourself and in the same way if you are earnest and <laughs> sort of open hearted even when people treat you badly like you have enough muscle memory to continue to lean in to continue to engage and like podcasting i think is a particularly good venue for this because of that that repetition you speak to around rituals in your book like you just yeah. show up and you, beth always says it's like the dairy farm the cows have to give milk so like, yeah. like we just got to go out there and we have to engage and open ourselves up again and and do it again and continue that work because there is a part of our brains even on these very like deeply emotional levels. And I, I'm using brains that I think I probably should use the word spirit, which is what you speak to, like sort of that spirituality that that is both higher level, but also needs that like that daily, that daily repetition. It is, a, it's muscle memory is not the word I need. It's like a spiritual habit, you know, and yeah. that's what builds it. And it builds on itself, both good ways and bad. I mean, the other thing that strikes me is for, for us with the podcast, and I'm sure this is true for the two of you as well, like at the heart of that project was just a really deep friendship, like was just mm. love. You know, when you feel invited into something like that, it feels good, right? We all want that. And so uh, in every project that I've done that succeeded, I've never done it by myself. It's always been with someone. And and I've just had to learn the hard way that I can't do it alone. Um, little Chicago reference there for you musical fans. But um, 
I, you know, and, and so for me, the work then becomes not how do I have a great idea, but how do I find someone who cares about the questions that I care about enough to risk creating something together? You know, how do we build the trust between us to be deep enough to, to navigate the conflict that will inevitably arise? Um, and that's the thing I'm most grateful for in, in all of this is like, I've just been very lucky enough to find wonderful collaborators and friends. And I think I think we all need that to some extent. Well, that's a great opening to ask you to tell us about the nearness, what what you're creating now and and what's going on with that project. You know, I I mentioned my interest in in kind of how do we build the containers that that hold relationships, you know, in, in a time where we're all drowning in fabulous content, you know, and I listen mm-hmm. and create my own pile of that, you know, um, whether it's books or podcasts or or you know, YouTube videos or movies, whatever. Um and so we're, we have access to content in a way that's totally unparalleled. But what we're so often missing are the containers of relationship within which we get to make meaning of that. Like, hey, did you watch that series three of whatever? Yes. Okay, great. Me too. But like, how can we actually talk about it in more depth? Or, you know, what are the stories of my own life that I'd like to talk about more with other people who've shared similar experiences or, um, yeah, any, any place where we can really get to that kind of deeper meaning and so the nearness is designed to help us feel more connected to ourselves, one another, and the world around us. Um, and it does that through a sort of six-week journey in small groups. And so you sign up to be in a small group with six or seven other people. You get together at the same time every week for six weeks. It all happens on Zoom. And we guide you through with a, a kind of guided conversation, uh, a series of reflections and conversations uh, and invitations to, to make a commitment to the coming week that hopefully helps people really nurture that part of their lives that, you know, speaks to the things of, of um, ultimate importance. So um, it's been really lovely to, to see we've gone through a couple of these journeys now uh, uh, with people signing up. And it's, you know, for any spiritual and religious affiliation and none, it's really designed for a very diverse context. Um, so there's no assumption of shared belief or practice, but what is shared is a commitment to be in relationship with each other. So yeah, that's what that's what the nearness is all about. I love that. And I wonder as you do this work, you know, it's inevitable. What we're talking about here is human beings. Oh yeah. Who will upset and disappoint you, especially the more diverse the audience. And I wonder what you've learned as you've navigated that disappointment around J.K. Rowling. I mean, Harry Potter has all this wisdom and beauty. It's all here for all of us. I would I would actually particularly like you to just help me put words when I get into it about my with my 13-year-old about this. Mm. That would be great. Like, you just write some sort of script for me, even though we <laughs> are, this is supposed to be the stuff we do. But I, I think that's it's, it's really hard because humans inevitably disappoint us or take positions, especially when we're talking about politics, that we don't like. That lens of ritual and community, how do you navigate that? Yeah, I love that, Sarah. I literally, in an info session for the Ninas just a few hours ago, I was saying, you will fall in love with your small group and they'll disappoint you. And that is yes. part of the experience. So we're very upfront because I, if there's anything I can be assured of, it's that, you know, we'll disappoint each other at some point. And it was it was really disappointing, uh, you know, when, when J.K. Rowling came out, not with her first transphobic uh, mm-hmm. missive, that, that had already happened, but it was this double down oh, exactly. kind of vitriolic like, essay that had just gone into so much. There was clearly so much pain there for her, and I, I can't comment beyond that in terms of her experience, but I was very grateful that from the beginning we had said we're not interested in authorial intent, we're interested in a reader's engagement with the text. So to some extent we were 
protected by you know not being very interested in the author from the beginning we we cared about how people were reading the text but we absolutely asked ourselves can we ethically continue with this project you know um and so we did as best we could um what what i hope anyone would do which is to ask the audience and say hey like what are your thoughts what do you think uh, and in particular we were interested in hearing from trans and non-binary listeners who were obviously the most impacted um by by jk rowling's comments and we did a whole episode where we just shared voice notes voicemail messages from from trans and non-binary listeners and you know as ever it wasn't like one community response. There were people who said, I can never read this book again. I am heartbroken. This woman has ruined something that was so important for me. I, I, can't, I can't be part of this anymore. And there were other people who said, uh, how dare she? This book doesn't belong to her anymore. It's our story. Um, and she can't just take it away from us by going on this horrific vitriolic rant. Um, and other people landed somewhere in between. And so that's that's how we continued the conversation was by making space, I hope, for, for all of those um, and inviting people to do what was right for them. We ultimately decided to continue with the podcast um, with some changes that the next time we read it through. And so now the, the uh, my co-host and co-creator Vanessa Zoltan is reading it with my former <laughs> literature and religion and professor Matthew Potts. So <laughs> the audience got a real upgrade there. I've got a Harvard <laughs> professor leading them through the text now. But they have a real commitment to be more critical of the text because there's there's mm. so much wrong with it, as there is with yes. any text. Because guess what? There's a lot wrong with the world. And so um that was that was our reaction to it. Um probably not perfect, but I, I, I'm also really invested in, you know, in the same way of of creating containers, is how do we cultivate a relational space in which, as you said, hurt and disappointment are not a threat, they are an expectation. And so for me, the practice of covenant as a community is one that I'm really passionate about because I think it gives us a way back towards each other when, not if, we hurt each other. Mm, I love that so much. I think that's that's it. That's it, right? We call each other in instead of calling each other out, right? I mean, mm. and that's, I think that the idea that we're not fixing it, there is no per there is no perfect response available to us. That the only the only path forward is forward, not to some destination. Mm. That calls me back to your activism time and thinking about how we have an audience of people who are frequently disappointed and heartbroken mm. and <laughs> yeah. find staying engaged with the news really challenging, but also a commitment that they've made to care about the world around them. So having integrated all of these experiences that you've had and all the work that you've done, I wonder if you went back in time and were advising your younger self uh, at the beginning of that climate activism journey, what what you would share? I hope I could invite him to pay attention to the people who've stayed committed in the long haul. For me, that was, and I, I guess I did this a little bit as a young man, but one of the reasons I ended up in divinity school is because I kept noticing that the people who were still committed had some sort of spirituality thing going on. Mm. And I didn't didn't know what to make of that, felt weird to me especially with activists who've kept going a long time, you know, you can burn off anger for a while, but that can't be the thing that sustains you forever. Um, or if it does, boy, is that going to be a difficult, difficult life. I, I think there has to be a wellspring of love from which you can be angry. It's it's not that anger has no space in activism, but that there, there, ha there has to be a rootedness in something good. 
that that carries us all through. Otherwise, I think we become pretty bitter and 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 not good for each other, honestly, over time. So I I hope I would encourage myself to notice who are the people who are rooted in goodness um, and to figure out how I can root myself in that same goodness, um, whatever language I'd use for it, to to sustain me and not just to be going off the kind of indignant outrage that was definitely the the fuel <laughs> at that point. I listened to an interview with Bill McGibbon, a longtime climate activist. Yeah. And it's like the the climate activism community, we all that care, all of us that care about the climate are entering a new phase. It's like it's the building phase now. We've sort of, you know, what you're doing is climate activism, finding, you know, containers for relationship and community organizations because we are entering a new phase where we are not in this space where we're trying to, you know, get the data or convince people. We have historical climate change legislation here in the United States, and we're on the cusp of all this, you know, renewable energy technology where it's time to pivot. It's time to move into a different place that is fueled by love and building and the future and not this sort of righteous anger at how things were done badly in the past. Well, I, I really appreciate you saying that because that that's how it works in my head as well. Is you know, I was really involved in kind of mitigation work. So like how do you reduce the output of 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 carbon emissions amongst other fossil fuel uh, emissions? But now I think of my work as more about adaptation. So look, we're already in a world where there are climate refugees. We we know we're yeah. gonna be resource uh strapped in in terms of access to 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 water and and so much else. So what is the culture going to look like when that really arrives at our own doorstep? And Rebecca Solnit's work has been so important for me in kind of looking at immediate disaster responses when we see the, you know, yes, you see the worst of people now and then, but mostly you see the best of people in those immediate responses to disasters. The, the, the capacity for mutual aid and mutual support and the generosity and 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 goodness that comes out of people in those moments is so amazing. And I want to cultivate that so that when, you know, when the time comes so that we're asked, like, I mean, my parents just had this, like they're housing two Ukrainian refugees and have been doing since March. And as are 60 other households in the village that I grew up in, you know, because people needed a place to go. And so I, how can we train ourselves to be ready to give what we can when, when, when we need to, which is all the time. Um, and I love that you mentioned Bill because he's he's a friend of mine and such an inspiration. And like to see that man walk or ski or swim or like do anything in the natural world is to see a man in love with nature. And so like he's so fueled by that in his daily life, you know, maddeningly so to hike with him is just like running behind him, keeping up, even though he's like four <laughs> decades older than me. Um, but like he embodies that in such a beautiful way. Well, I think you do too. And I think that this work you're doing is so important and it will fuel this next phase. And we thank you so much for your work. It's definitely affected both of us tremendously. I so appreciate you both doing the work that you're doing. And um, thanks, for, thanks for having me and, and everyone who's listening. I know they're you know, fighting the good fight wherever they are. So really grateful for everyone. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. 
they have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Thank you so much to Casper Turkile for joining us. Sarah, our outside of politics today is an obvious topic considering the conversation with Casper because he mm. focuses so beautifully on community. And we got a very tangible manifestation of our community through their holiday cards that I finally got to read. I'm so mad that our P.O. box is in Paducah and that I had to wait so long to get them. But I finally got to read them and it was wonderful. You know, we had that conversation in December. I don't really know how it kind of fell out that the P.O. box started getting shared and people started sending their holiday cards. But 
I mean, the last time I went, there were 70 in there. And to hold this big fat stack (laughs) with your handwriting and your faces and your beautiful children and families and vacations, I just cannot say enough about what an incredible blessing it was to receive these cards from all of you. It really was. You all have excellent taste. Mm-hmm. You are so photogenic. I saw it so pretty. So, so pretty. pretty. I loved seeing your handwriting, just like you said, Sarah. Even many of you like would stick a post-it note mm-hmm. just say, saying hi to us with the Christmas card. It was so fun. You are clever and, and excellent writers. There were so many fun. I read everybody's long letters about their mm-hmm. lives. Mm-hmm. I know about your dogs and your jobs and your moves and the babies that you all are expecting. I really appreciated how many people included something that was kind of hard about their year. Memorial to someone who's passed away or a sickness or just the fact that their lives are consumed by therapy appointments and doctor's visits. It just, it was very real. And I loved getting to feel that realness in my hands in my living room. Absolutely. And I, you know, this is not a competition. But I have to shout out a couple very specific cards that delighted me to no end and I think speak to exactly what you're talking about. First of all, you guys, MVP for a couple reasons. Liz Mobley, she does a singles card. We talked about how we love a singles card. We got so many. They were all so good. The singles cards made me feel like I really need to up my game on our cards because they were so good. They're good. They can't lean on a cute baby, but you know what I'm saying? Like, they got to really bring it. And they did, Liz, you guys. So (laughs) she writes new lyrics to a Christmas song. They are legitimately funny. And here's where she really shines, you guys. She said, I know Sarah likes a collection, you guys. She sent them for like the last five years. We got like all five that she since she's been doing this. I cannot. I I had to take a minute. I had to just stop and just be in it. I sang along to the lyrics. Like, I loved it, Liz, to send, to say, to reference the collection and send them all. Because, listen, that's a big deal. To save, to know you have extras, to package up the complete collection of extras you have saved and send them to us. Like, Liz, understand, I, I feel it. I get it. Incredible. I thought Crystal also deserved a shout out for having her adult children replicate their picture on Santa's lap. <sighs> this energy, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> and she like puts a picture of all the previous years in a Christmas morning on the card and then the newest one on the back with her adult children sitting with Santa. I cannot. I cannot. I noticed that Simba and Betsy's card just felt like an ongoing celebration because mm-hmm. there are wedding pictures. There's the baby announcement. It was like it was like someone jumping out of a cake and saying, we have all the good news over here. Yep. And I was so happy for them. Also, I have to shout out Abby. Abby writes a letter. The whole letter was hilarious. But y'all, she she described her toddler. She said, who has the emotional stability of a sleep-deprived preteen and the communication skills of a domesticated parent. (laughs) I died. I've read it to like five people. It's such a good description of a toddler. Oh, my God. (laughs) Well, thank you for sharing your cards with us. It was just... The most special surprise. I could I could never have imagined getting to know you all a little bit better in this way. And it was it was so much fun. Wait, I have one more. I have to squeeze in one more shout out. This is like a level of life as represented by by Christmas card that 
it was like the Mount Everest situation. Okay, y'all, Rachel has four children. She serves in the National Guard. She runs marathons. And then she also writes a letter where she assigns everyone in her family their own special song. Rachel. Rachel, you're making all the rest of us look very lazy. No, she doesn't. I, I just was very impressed. And I was like, that needs a shout out too, because that is, that's a lot. That's These are little kids too. They're not grown. And to the fact that it's not a competition, I equally loved the people who just like selected a beautiful card and wrote a note inside. Like it, 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 it was very consistent with the conversation we had about cards before the holiday. Mm-hmm. That it doesn't matter what it is or how it's done. It's just lovely to get mail from a person to you. It's just really lovely. There were homemade cards. You guys, Nicole sent us baklava because she makes a thousand pieces of homemade baklava to send out on the holidays. Like, what is even... I like the person, too, who was like, you got a papyrus card. That's how you know I love you. We are sending these cards around to our team. Everyone is going to get to see and read them because they are... I kind of wish I could just pack, like, maybe I'll just send them down the list of Christmas cards so you guys can sit with your own stack and just soak up the love because you are... The most incredible community. Speaking of being an incredible community, don't forget that if you'd like to be part of reading the January 6th report with us in community, to sign up for more to say through our premium content on either Apple Podcast subscriptions or Patreon, there are links in the show notes for that. We will be back in your ears this Friday. Until then, we hope you have the best week available to you. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman, Molly Kors, Catherine Vollmer, Lori Ladau, Lily McClure, Linda Daniel, Emily Neasley, The Cousins, Tawny Peterson, Tracy Putoff, Sarah Ralph, Jeremy Sequoia, Katie Steigers, Karen True, Annika Uveline, Nick and Elisa Valelli, Amy Whited, Emily Helen Olson, Lee Shea McDonough, Jeff Davis, Melinda Johnston, Michelle Wood, Joshua Allen, Morgan McHugh, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.